0: I am, too. I don't know what was wrong with me, so. um, but it's nice to be back with you. A couple things. uh, uh, I just flew in from Texas, but Janet flew in from Kansas City, and uh, we knew this was going to be a big stretch for us, so I've been gone for two weeks. I haven't seen my Mrs. Wonderful in two weeks. So when I saw her at the airport tonight, I think I was going to have chest pain or something. So nice, you know. And uh, and then there's Gracie. She's our youngest, and... um, so she's our little precious travel buddy. So, um, so thank you for having us. I was in Texas for two weeks at the Discipleship Intern Training Program, and so I was there teaching, and I asked them all to be praying for this conference. And so the whole assembly down there in Lubbock, Texas, was praying. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing about Lubbock. It's the, uh, the people are great, but don't go there. I'm sure it's flat. No, it's 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 the city of the strip mall, you know. It's just everywhere. People are great, though. You go for the people, but uh, but everybody in West Texas thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know. Uh, but it's 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 you you know, it, it, you, you got to work at it a little bit. Um, but what's funny is um, they like to tell you about the great things about Lubbock, Texas, which I didn't know there was anything great. Did you know they have? Um, a, a little field to the prairie dog, and you know what that little monument is when you go out to see the prairie dog? It's just a field. I mean, there's no fence, there's no nothing. You just go out there, and these little prairie dogs pop up, and you say hi. They wave back at you, and and they say, "Okay, let's go." That's it. That's their thing. The highest point in the city is the overpass, you know. So, but I have to tell you, the assembly's great, and the people are lovely. But they'd like to tell you, they like to brag about their city, and one of the things they brag about now is Patrick Mahomes is from their uh, um, Texas Tech. Patrick Mahomes plays for the Kansas City Chiefs, and so everybody in Lubbock, Texas is automatically a Kansas City Chiefs fan. So so I kind of like them for that reason. But, you know, this idea of they glory, they glory in their city. You know, they want to tell me everything about it. They want to take me places. It takes about ten minutes. And then... And, and, and I appreciate their enthusiasm and their, and their tremendous passion for Lubbock, Texas, the land of the great West Texas country, frontier. And I go, great, fantastic. But you know, there's something to be said about glory, right? And this weekend, we're, we want to talk about worship. But in order to set the stage for that, I need to talk about glory first, glory, and so tonight, I'm just going to talk about the glory of God, just for a minute. Now, I greatly appreciated uh, those who led in song for us, because you were singing about His glory. Now, I have five things I want to say about glory tonight. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of paint the picture by giving you a definition. Then I'm going to show you in the Scriptures where it's a, where it's a priority. Then I'm going to show you why it was significant because there was a protest, a protest in glory. And then I want to show you that although the Lord Jesus didn't have to, he proved himself. And then I want to end sometime before midnight on how personal it is. You see, when I talk about glory to somebody, you know, I hear every kind of response. I hear, well, who wouldn't want glory? I mean, you know, it's kind of self-serving. You can do, do what I say and you can glorify me. I mean, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of self-serving, isn't it, Steve? And they all infer that God has an ulterior motive about glory. And I'm here to tell you that that's actually a wrong idea. It's, it's dead wrong. And I'll show you from the Bible where it's dead wrong. I hear other people say, glory, that's fantastic. What is it? And and you know and and so we're kind of clueless there. But I really want to just show you that this glory of God thing made a big difference, and people saw or or witnessed the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament transform their lives. Isaiah was in the temple with the glory of God; he came out a different man. And Paul would say. You know the the manifold wisdom of God that that is that, that constructs and, and displays the glory of God. Who can understand that? And you get this sort of theme throughout the Word of God that the glory of God is a big deal, and it is. All right. So let's just start tonight. What what is uh what is the definition of glory, kabod, right? What does it mean? Well, it it it, it actually is in several places. And and I don't I won't turn to a lot of scriptures on this because I do have a lot of ground to cover. But um, one of the places where you get a definition is Genesis forty five thirteen. Don't turn it there. It's the idea of reputation and honor. Um, uh, there's an inference in there of it being of wealth, of great of great notoriety, wealth and fame, wealth and fortune, wealth and and, and sort of. Uh, um, exquisite wisdom, you know, just brilliance. And so there's this idea of glory that, that indicates that you're important. And because of those features about you, you therefore are given rule because people uh, acknowledge your tremendous insight and understanding and your fortune and your fame, and they want to come to you. Instead of fight you, they want to lay down their lives. And, and this, is, this is exactly how it happened with David and Solomon. You know, that's, that was their history, their legacy. So people would come and sometimes without a fight and they would just give themselves over because you have so much glory. We can't, we can't uh, compete with that glory. We can't compete with your brilliance, your fame, O King Solomon. We're just going to surrender. So there's this idea of reputation and therefore sovereign rule. In the Old Testament, They use the word Shekinah glory. You know, the word Shekinah just means literally to dwell or abide. And what God was saying is, I will take my presence and I will abide with you. And it always seemed to show up in several different um, physical manifestations, sometimes smoke, sometimes fire, sometimes just brightness. And so you get this sort of telescoping idea that the glory of God has behind it a whole series of, of characteristics of God that is, uh, that is a wealth and, and, and fame and fortune and strength and power and might and rule and kingdom. And, and, and then when you actually come into the throne room, it's so brilliant and bright and overwhelming with all the ornateness. There's only one thing you can do and that's bow down and worship. So... Maybe that would help us set the stage tonight to understand a little bit about glory. Now, although that definition is kind of the Old Testament, um, in the New Testament, the basic word is doxa. You get like doxology, you know. And it, and it, it indicates a, a significant opinion it indicates a high estimate, a good opinion. Um, and by inference it, it means splendor that I have that you I have such a high opinion of you because you have such splendor, such majesty. And when we get into Revelation, probably by tomorrow or Sunday, you'll see the splendor of the throne room. And suddenly we get this idea that that uh in the New Testament there's this overwhelming sense of of honor, the God has um, has deserved. He has deserved honor, esteem, uh, a sense of of holding one in a certain place. Someone who is mighty, someone who is powerful. You just you just have this <clears throat> fear of God. Glory, glory. You know, one of the things I'm afraid that's happened to the church today is that we have forgotten how glorious our God is. You see, when we remember that our God is majestic and holy and righteous and, and high and lifted up, we think differently, don't we? We don't think that it, we should be bickering with one another because there's someone of greater uh, stature and might and power. in. Uh, we're in His presence and we shouldn't be cutting up like that. We, we begin to think differently as if, as if we'll prioritize our our lives with a different sense of order. You know, when we think of the glory of God, it has a way of, of, of rubbing off on you. Do you remember that guy? What was his name? Moses, yeah. He would go up to the mountain, and he would come down, and his face was kind of bright, and everyone would go, oh, where did you go? And the whole point was that he was in the presence of God, and the brilliance of God had an effect like—I don't know what you call it—like like divine suntan. I don't know. And 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 he would come down, and his face would just shine. And he actually had to veil it, cover it, if people were freaking out. We see the glory of God has a transforming effect upon you. And one of the things I think the Bride of Christ is suffering from is that we have actually failed to appreciate that our God is really glorious. Do you ever want to be on the championship team? I always do. Whenever they pick teams, I'm going, don't pick me, don't pick me, because I think they're going to win. Well, you're on the the team, the family, that has the champion, the brilliant one, the one who slayed our great foe, our Goliath, which was Satan and death. He held our lives all those years in fear of bondage because of the st- power of death that he held. And our champion came to the valley of, uh, of the eternal Elah and took on our giant and slew him with one head blow and you and I were free. Oh, listen, that champion of ours is glorious. Hmm? All right. Okay, so let's move on past our little definition that we're trying to paint. I want to show you in the scriptures why this is a priority. And perhaps uh, a couple of Psalms will help us here just as we get into this segment. So the priority of the glory of God. Now, let's just turn to Psalm 8, verse 1, just for a second. And as you can tell, when you do a topical series, you kind of have to move around in the scriptures. The risky thing is that I take things out of context. So, I hope not to do that for you, and we'll keep it all within the appropriate hermeneutic. Psalm 8:1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That means there is no place in the earth his name is not known. Who have set, who have set your glory? Above the heavens, do you see that? You get this idea. His name is known everywhere. That's what it says: known in all the earth. So his reputation is there. And then, when you want to actually put a a kind of a measure, a yardstick to his glory, you have to use the heavens. Now, I don't know. I don't know what you think, but that's a that's a lot of distance, isn't it? to the heavens and so he's saying you have set your glory above the heavens so when you want to get down to this point of, of recognizing the, the glory of god if you could if you could have a, a, a cosmic ability to measure the heavens his glory is beyond that that's what he's saying it's try, he's poetically trying to expand your horizon to see the glory of God is tremendous to the psalmist, to this writer. Now, and actually it was a Psalm of David. And Psalm 19, you don't need to turn to that one. It says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Of course it does. His glory is beyond that. It reflects upon the heavens. Of course it'll tell the glory of God. And tonight, and you get some pretty sunsets. So we were driving back from the airport and I just saw the most beautiful sunset. And when we were out in the Bahamas, we saw some really beautiful sunsets. And when we were, up, uh, in the Bahama, when we were out in the Bahamas, we saw some beautiful sunrises. And, we just, and we're just like a little dot on the globe, and we just see the, the planetary systems move and our tiny little, our, our tiny little uh, uh, galaxy, our, 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 our solar system. And yet the galaxy is beyond that. And when you begin to look at that and, and appreciate the glory of God, I don't know what it is, but if he can do that, it must be greater. And you and I are the only people group on the planet that are authorized to understand it. That's impressive. It's like we get into the throne room all the time. Hmm. Well, just a couple of psalms there. One more, Psalm 96. Now, if you ever look for some psalms of worship, it's right in the high 90s. That's where you want to go, right? And... um, these kind of like five or six psalms, beginning roughly with Psalm 90 through the third, I think it's the third book of the, of the, uh, the third collection of poems in the psalms. This is it, but l- look at Psalm 96 with me. It says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Do you know why the psalmist says a new song? Because his glory demands not old leftovers, but it demands something fresh, something creative, something new, something precious that is hot off the press. That's what you do. You know, when I come home from a trip, Janet usually makes me chocolate chip cookies. Now, let me tell you something. They weren't made a week ago. They were made an hour ago. And she picks me up in the airport and she has them in the Ziploc baggie. The Ziploc baggie is steaming because, oh, my goodness. Now, if you don't think that's those aren't going to be in heaven, you're wrong. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Now the- that's what he's saying yeah, I, I I love that. She made it fresh for me. She's treating me like a king, and I certainly don't deserve that. But how often do we treat him like a king, or do we just bring the song we had yesterday or the day before or last week? Isn't that pathetic? We're not treating him with glory as glorious as he is. We're treating him as if he's common. He's not common. He's not some sort of um, God that just sort of shows up once in a while. No, this God of yours is, is worth more than that. And I don't think the bride thinks that. I don't think the bride sees that as we should. All right, let's just read this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. See how he calls anything that has breath, To proclaim the glory of God. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. We could say that, right? Now look at this, declare his glory among the nations. You see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, this God, is, it's all over the place, but let's tell everybody, every people group needs to know his wonders among the peoples, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. That's a very interesting poetic way to say that. He's great and then matches greatness with your praise. Make your praise equal to his greatness. And then he says this, so he is to be feared above all gods. Now, this little this, in, this verse is introducing something that I'm gonna talk in Isaiah I'll talk about in Isaiah in just a minute. But you will notice that when the Psalms are written, when the prophets are writing, you will notice that there is a measure of comparison that the prophet, the psalmist makes against the plurality of other gods that are out there. Because remember, in the times of this writing and the prophet's writing, the whole world was populated with multiple other gods, a pluralism, as it were. And What you'll find is God will say over and over, I am nothing like what you see, I'm nothing like that. My glory is brighter than that. All right, let's move on. He says, "For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens." It's, that's a that's kind of a a little shot at like Baal, you know, Baal who's supposed to be the god that makes it rain and everything. He says, "No, no, no. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty his beauty are in his sanctuary." You, you get the feel that the psalmist. He's just taken up with the glory of God. Now, I want you, with that setting, with that sort of foundation, I want you to look in Isaiah 6 with me, okay? And Isaiah 6 is perhaps one of the most profound uh, places about the glory of God in all of the Bible. The other ones will be in Revelation and some in Daniel. But this, this one is very interesting. Now, I know you've read this many times before, but it bears reading again. So I'll begin in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Do you know who Uzziah was? Uh, Yeah, Steve, uh, he was a king. (laughs) Good, good, good. You're doing well. I'm glad. But let me tell you something. Uzziah was was a, a good king. And he went around and he fortified the city, and he and he helped uh, all the all the um, uh, city have uh, increased taxes, and they, they was able to to provide for people and their needs. He so he uh, uh, brought back good judicial process, and he was really a good king. It's one of the few good kings of the of the southern regime, and yet Uzziah did something that was challenging to the glory of God. Not that God was challenged, but Uzziah challenged his glory. Now, I need you to think with me for a minute. So this is in the days when Solomon's temple was built. So it's a really beautiful structure. And if we could imagine this room uh, as as Solomon's temple, the first thing you'd notice is it's gold is everywhere. Not wood, not drywall, not paint, but just gold. It was on the wall, gold. You walked in, it'd be kind of bright, wouldn't it? Now, in, in this third of the room, there would have been this curtain with cherubim on there, and cherubim would have been sort of inlaid in all the, all the panels around the room. And cherubim are the guardians of the glory of God. You get the picture? Glory of God. Now, King Uzziah goes in one day. And because of all that he did and, and some, of the th- some of the battles that he won, he decided that he should burn incense before God. Now, of all the things that you can do as a priest the one thing that only the, priests were, were, could, only the priests could do was burn incense. In fact, it says in the Torah uh, that if anybody else tries to burn incense, you stand against them. You put up the block, right? King Uzziah was making a statement by trying to burn incense. So when he was making a statement, he's saying, I want the glory of the priesthood. Uh, the story is very telling because when he walked in there, he had the incense. Now, the incense had, you know, was a mixture, very pure mixture of equal quantities of various um, uh, spices and, and arom- aromatic uh, particles, powders. And then you had to have the heating element right under it that came from the burnt altar or the alt- bronze altar. And there's a lot of picturesque things in there, but there's a certain protocol you had to follow. It had to be the right way, the right fire, the right person. And Uzziah was the wrong person. And he came in and and the priest of that day cut up. And and with all the other priests, they almost like put this block to him. You know, imagine it, putting the block up. And they said, King, you ought not to do this. Instead, the king didn't back down. You know what he did instead? He got madder. And he he was really about to blow a fuse, you know. And about the time on that, he's about to blow a fuse. Leprosy begins to break out. Now, where do you think the leprosy began to break out. Now, leprosy was a skin disease. Actually, it wasn't just a skin disease. If it was the same disease as we had today as back then, it usually manifested as a skin disease, but it affected your joints, affected your digits. You would lose digits, lose feet, and, uh, and, and it would cause your face uh, to, to get just like this. You know. At least that's what you'd see today by the organism uh, 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 intracellular uh, leprosy. And so um, this particular disease usually is more of a chronic disease. It doesn't spread in in, in millimeters at a time. It, it, it's, it's slow growing. But within minutes, they saw leprosy on this man. So maybe his face was getting contorted. Maybe the creeping deadness of the skin was coming across his forehead. And I can just see these, prophet, uh, these priests. They're going, oh, King, you've got to leave now. Because... What he was doing was he was showing pride and arrogance in the throne of God. And pride and arrogance was thrown in the throne of God at a previous time. And that person was cast out of heaven. See the, see the similarities? I mean, you better believe that was fresh to the Lord, huh? So he got, they had to usher him out. And you know what he did? He, in, he died alone. Spent the rest of his days isolated. Boy, that tells you something, doesn't it? You see, Christian, the pride of your life will only do one thing. It'll be a great offense to God, and you'll most likely die alone. Pride is a killer. It is the great disease. It's the great cancer of all spiritual maladies. Pride is is such an offensive thing to God. Human pride? It begins to assault the glory of God. Now, when when Isaiah writes this, that's fresh in his mind. That's why he mentions it in the day, in that year that King Uzziah died. I think he would remember everything that happened with Uzziah. Isaiah was part of his regime or part of his, his tenure. And I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and the train of the robe filled the temple. Now, you understand what that means, right? So you have this big robe, and the very end of it is actually filling the temple. How big was the throne? How big was the room? Well, it depends, because it says in Isaiah 66 that heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. I use celestial bodies like my, they're my living room furniture where I would actually conduct business. So that throne has probably just got, or that temple just probably has a small portion of the robes, the fringes of God's robe. Now, here is... Here's uh Isaiah there and he is totally overwhelmed. Totally overwhelmed and he st- and he heard these seraphim and they're and they're making noise and and they're saying holy 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 almost as if they're saying it to each other and the seraphim themselves they seemed outstandingly brilliant and and unusual and frightening they had six, uh, six wings, two pairs of uh, three pairs of two and one covered their feet and one they flew and, and one covered their face as if to say in the presence of God, we will be that creature that will cover our glory so that the glory of God will be the only thing that's seen. And there's Isaiah. And he says, you know, why am I here? Because my king just just died and and i'm of the same substance of him and he was absolutely petrified look at what was going on the post the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried and the house was filled with smoke when it says smoke that's that idea of the glory of god that was the same thing that happened at mount sinai and then it says this woe is me for i'm undone because of a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips meaning this i shouldn't be here glory of god is overwhelming my soul it casts a shadow upon me that exposes my deepest darkest secrets of unholiness and unrighteousness i should not be here I am of the same substance, because he says I am of a people of unclean lips. I am of the same substance as King Uzziah. I am the same substance as King Ahab. I am the same substance of all those kings, and I shouldn't be here. The glory of God is is going to consume me. You hear it? You see that? It's a real priority. it, 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 It isn't something that Isaiah asks, well, can I see your glory like Moses? excuse me it's it was it was just there it just exists it just is and that's the whole point the glory of god it just is he doesn't have to defend himself he doesn't have to explain himself he doesn't have to tell you that well the reason why my glory is so important is because and map it out for us it just is it's who god is And we don't get to dictate who God is. We don't get to tell God to knock it off. We recognize his superiorness and his majesty and his glory, and we worship that. But we got it all wrong today. We like to argue about everything, don't we? We like to say to God, why don't you prove it to me? I'll believe it if I see it. It's not new. It happened in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But that's the wrong way. You see, I think we have just too much of an arrogant attitude against God and towards God. I think we're just sort of, sort of thinking that God is more like a peer, and we can kind of come and talk about it. And you have your opinion, and I have my opinion, and we kind of talk it out, and maybe you come to a conclusion, and you'll see that I'm partly right and you're partly right, and we'll have what we call compromise. And you know what that is? Stupid. That's so stupid. When you're dealing with a God who literally spoke your existence into being, you don't debate, you don't blame, you don't defer, you don't hide, you don't dodge. Just because of who he is, it demands a certain response from you. I think we've missed that. In our day when we're trying not to make anybody feel bad, we should be feeling bad. Because we're in the presence of greatness, my friends, greatness. And that greatness should have an effect that's profound upon us, that affects us not just now, but tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening, and all through our day tomorrow. That greatness of God is the kind of thing that should never, ever escape us, but I'm afraid it's escaping us too quickly. Oh, no, glory of God. But there's a couple other facets to this glory. And I want to talk about the protest. The protest. Now, in order to get this um, in in focus, turn to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 is, is a passage that has, by many, thought to be a passage reflective of satanic dimension, primarily Lucifer. And, um, and the reason why it, it's stated that way is, although it's talking about Babylon, the king of Babylon, there seems to be a switch in there that is a change in tone, a change in um, uh, pronouns. It seems to be referring to Satan who was behind the king. And when you look at that, you come to verse 12, and you, and you hear this. How you, have fall, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And whether you think the title Lucifer should be, not, be there or not, according to textual criticism, doesn't matter. The son of the morning sort of says it all. Who is the son of the morning? Well, that was actually Lucifer. See, Lucifer was the uh, chief cherub, you know, the one that guards the presence of God. And so how you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, you see, it's like he's saying, you're the, the angelic demonic force behind the King of Babylon. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, it's interesting here. You notice there's 5 I wills. It's famous. It's 5 I wills. Did you know when, when the Lord recrafts the new covenant, In Hebrews chapter 8, he uses five I wills. Except when God uses these second five I wills, it goes like this. I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. Exact opposite of the terminology and tone of satanic voice. Now look at what he says. I will ascend into heaven. What is heaven? The throne of God. What's he saying there? I'm going to sit on your throne. What's he say next? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Who are the stars of God? Angelic beings. And look at this. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That is a reference. That is a reference to the temple and in Jerusalem. But as you know, in Hebrews, there appeared to be uh, a similar structure that had similar configuration and similar um, floor plan as the, as the tabernacle and the temple here upon the earth. And so it's easily, it can be easily said Satan was trying to take on the very structure similar to the tabernacle slash temple of this earth, trying to take it on. They got reference to the sides of the north in Jerusalem that is in Israel today. The sides of the north was higher in elevation. The city of Jerusalem was like here. And so if you're ever gonna conquer Jerusalem, You come on the north and you descend. And that's exactly how they lost the battle in 70 AD with Titus. He came on the north side and they broke through on several lines and was able to ransack the city. He's saying this I will take the city of God down. That's what he's saying. He says this I will ascend above the heights of the clouds that's kind of an interesting statement because it says the clouds are the dust of the feet of God, but yet it has an earthly kind of tone to it, an earthly sort of sentiment. And he's really saying to you, um, I will ascend above whatever on earth is glorious. And then he gets to the clincher. He says, I will, I will, I will take on your title. That's what I want. Now, when this happened, the Lord Jesus said this way, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You remember that? He's talking to the Pharisees. He said, I saw him fall like lightning. And immediately your mind goes to all these movies where somebody gets thrown out of wherever and it chums to the earth, you know. And, and that, that's a rough, loose interpretation of what really happened. What really happened was Satan was trying to assault the glory of God and God cast him out in this narrative. And where did he end up? Here. That's what that's what Jesus said. Now, what does it say in the Bible about glory on the earth? Well, the heavens declare your glory. Your glory is written in the clouds, you know, general revelation, or in the uh, cosmos, the uh, general revelation. But it also says that man, and really woman, We're the pinnacle of the creation on this planet. It actually says in the book of 1 Corinthians 11 that the glory of God is the man. So direct image, that kind of thing. So if you're relegated, sort of like outcasted, banished to the planet, and then you've got on this planet living something who is the primo, ultimate apex of God's creation, mankind, uh, you know, man and womankind together, humankind... What would be the next best thing you should do? Take the glory of God on the earth. Hmm, not bad. Now you can do you can steal glory. You can steal something one of two ways. I can go and I can lie to you, and you can join my team, and I win. But if I can get you to voluntarily come to my side, now that hurts more, doesn't it? You know, if your spouse comes to you and says, I, "I'm sorry." Uh, I had a better deal, and they're being lied to, and they go to the other direction to some other person. That's one thing you almost can understand it because they're just believing a lie. But if the spouse says to you, "You know, I just don't want to do, I don't want to do you anymore. I'm choosing. I know, I know everything about you. I'm just choosing to go another way." That that's like a, a bigger knife. Satan did both, both knives. He's really trying to 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 hurt God. He's really trying to go for the jugular, if you will. So he steals the glory of God upon this earth and he does it by lying to Eve and getting Adam to come to his side knowing exactly what was wrong and what the price was and what was at stake And so when you talk about the glory of God, you have to understand that the protest, the coup attempt, was meant to steal the glory of God first in heaven, then upon this earth, and then the curse came so that the entire planet is under the sway of the enemy and held in bondage by fear of death. That's why the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would take a lower place below the angels, that is below Lucifer even. So that he could become human just like you and I. And then in that same narrative would go through the the process of being a baby, a toddler, an infant, a toddler, a child, a school age person, a teenager, a young adult. And now finally to adulthood, just, just so he could do one thing. And that is take back the glory of God. That's what happened, right? The cross It looked like it was the final death blow. It looked like, oh, it's going to be lost. And yet, within less than 72 hours, according to the Jewish calendar, he breaks the chains of death. See, that is so glorious. That is so glorious. So the reason why God's glory is important is not only do we define it, not only do we see it as a priority, but now we see what Satan was up to and why God would institute this plan of salvation to reestablish his glory. Absolutely. Turn to Philippians with me. Just for a minute. So we have this, this protest, but then we have how Christ in, in conjunction with this coup attempt of, of Satan how he proves himself. Now listen, you don't have to prove yourself. The Lord is already glorious. The Lord is already who he is, but he then goes the extra mile and does the extra thing, just like he taught us in Matthew. And he goes to the depths of suffering so that he could legitimately, legally, with integrity, claim true glory. God actually put him in that place. The Father did. Look at what it says. Chapter 2, verse... Beginning in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's the first half of that Philippians message, that he thought of you and I as more important than himself. He, thought he, he, he did not have selfish ambition or empty conceit, but he looked at our interests more than his own. And with that attitude in mind, that humble attitude, he, he being in the form of God, the word form of God means whatever it is that consists of the definition of God, that's what he owned. And he was in that state before that statement was written, when that statement was written, and after that statement was written. He was eternal God. And he says this, uh, he said, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You know what that means? See, Philippi was a, a, a city that saw the last battle of the uh, Roman Empire when uh, Mark Antony and, and, and Octavius were kind of duking it out. And the final battle of that, of that history was was fought in Philippi. And so the, the Philippians had this, this really resounding historical information about their city. And so they knew what it was like for emperors and, and coup attempts to occur in the kingdom. And they witnessed it. And here the Lord Jesus, St. Saying, Paul saying, Jesus is bigger and brighter than the Caesar, and he could do like whatever Aunt Mark Anthony did and Octavius did, but he didn't. He did the exact opposite. He didn't seize the throne, nor did he defend the throne. He stepped down from the throne. And he took on the form. You see that form of a slave. I thought it should say form of a man, but it says, for, it says form of a slave. Why? Because if you were retired military in Philippi, which it was, you would know exactly what it means to go from the highest to the lowest because you owned many a slave and you knew exactly what that would mean for that throwaway styrofoam life that you used all your years as a Roman general. And the Lord Jesus took that. Oh, this would mean so much. He didn't have to do this, but he did it anyway. And then, being found in that, in that state of a bondservant, he then uh, could be seen as a man. You could see his, his, he wasn't an animal that was a slave. He wasn't a tool that was a slave. He was the son of God who became the form of a servant, a form of a slave. And then, as a man, he would do what no man would ever do obey. He would obey. And he wouldn't just obey in the easy things, and he wouldn't just obey in the fun things. He'd obey in the worst things, and the worst thing was actually going to a cross. And oh, this cross, it was not an ordinary cross. It was a cross of shame, and it was a cross of of, of cursing. The Jews would walk by, cursed of God. I don't know what he did. He must be cursed of God. The Romans would strip you bare. You would be without clothing on the cross because they're trying to shred every single piece of human dignity from your body and your soul. And that's what my Savior did. He was in that very position and he was obedient unto death. Let me tell you, the reason why glory is important is because my Savior took back what was take what was stolen from Satan under the sovereignty of God and did it right and did it complete and did it whole. And that's glorious, my friends. No wonder the Father did what he did next and raised him up and seated him, give, highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Do you see what we should be doing? Do you see how we should be responding? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. Oh, listen. The reason why glory is important is not only because it has priority, not only because there was a coup attempt or a protest, but he proved it. He proved himself. So ask me why we should worship God. Just ask me. Because he's glorious. Now there's one final note I want to give to you. There's a verse in the Proverbs that says the glory of children is their father's. I didn't understand this until I had my five-year-old. I know you're wondering why I put the chair there. You think I'm going to sit in it, aren't you? Nah. When I was uh, a young father, my, my little girl came to me one day and said, Daddy, um, to, uh, this next week is you know, show and tell, and we're supposed to bring in our dads so they can show and tell would you come I'll be there you bet I was a young doctor you know I brought a, I I I brought out the starchest white coat I had <laughs> couldn't move in it I had I had I had these big bold bright cherry fire red letters Doctor Stephen Price MD F A C E P D U M B I walked in there. Fireman, policeman right there. The guys are, the guys are like 6'20". I can't even see. I get, the, the, They have to have oxygen to be that tall. How you doing? Yeah, the, I look like a grasshopper, okay? And so they like doing their thing. I'm doing my thing. And I'm just like little short dude, you know? And so it comes my turn. I have my doctor's bag. The doctor's bag. I take that baby out and I put it on the table, boom, like that. And all those five-year-olds go, oh, oh. So I open that bag up, light comes out, butterflies, flower petals. And I roll up my sleeve and I stick it in the bag like I'm reaching down to China. And I pull out like, you know, stethoscopes that are six feet long and you know, hypodermic needles and casts, and it's and on all those kids, they are just whoa, that's all. You know, um, of course, I'm not loving it at all. And and I I look up, and there's my daughter in the back, right in the back. She's on the chair. and She's going like this, just like that. You know what she was doing? Glorying in her father. That's what she was doing. Now, when I saw that moment, that little moment in my life, and how my little girl was glorying in her father, you know what happened to me? I melted. And our hearts went like this. And we were welded together immediately. From that moment on, it wasn't about me. It was about that little girl loving her daddy so much. I loved her back. Do you know why the glory of God's important? It's personal. You see, when God has his rightful place in glory, receiving our appropriate worship, a unique thing happens between the worshipper and the one who is worshiped. Do you know what happens? Their hearts are welded together like never before. So why do I want to talk about this thing called worship? Why do I even want to talk about the glory of God? I want you to have the highest elevated opinion of your God ever. I want you to know what was at stake. I want you to see that there was a, there was a priority in the word of God, and it's appropriate, and there's a protest that happened, and our Savior beat it. And I want you to see that it's, it's proper because of his fantastic victory. But I want you to know, it's personal. It's personal. Hmm. So hopefully that'll set the tone for us this weekend. I know I delayed your pie this evening, and it's one of my favorite things about this conference, and I do brag about it all over across the United States. But um, if we could just start that way, think about our Savior I think we'll have a great weekend together. Father, this evening we come, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the splendid Savior that he is. Father, we thank you that we know this man, the one who rescued us. He's God. He he brings to us grace and truth and he brings to us your majesty and he brings to us a narrative that we never would have thought of. Tonight, we just want to close our little hour in in humble adoration. and We want to give you thanks, give you praise and honor. Make us true worshipers, Lord, true worshipers, please. Tonight, we thank you for the food. It's another indication of your glorious provision Father I know I know I have friends who most likely have not eaten tonight We would like to say thank you and please provide for them In Jesus name Amen